Cool. That was louder than I expected. <laughs> louder means emptier. Mark Graven and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with the Fun Spirit. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 14 of the Lean Whiskey podcast. I'm Mark Graben, and we are joined once again by Jamie Flinchbaugh. How are you, Jamie? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing well. Happy Sunday night to you as we as we tend to record these on. Yes, I hope you've had a good weekend. Yeah, yeah, it's been a pretty laid back um, weekend at home. More movie watching than usual. Uh, we're we're not intentionally nesting, but that that, that just sort of happens. So enjoying the home theater. You need a weekend uh, like that every once in a while. Uh, when yeah. we when we do get one, we tend to use them to introduce uh, older movies for at least for our generation to the kids. Um, so, what did you what did you do, what did you do with your movie watching? Well, we it was, it ended up stuff that's pretty heavy. So, one was a movie, fairly recent movie called Dark Waters, which is about somebody fighting Dupont having polluted water in uh, West Virginia. So, you know, it's just yes. some light, light viewing there. Um, the second one, then we, the next night we watched one called The Report, which was about enhanced interrogation techniques, another theatrical release, but based on uh, real life and, and pretty heavy stuff. And then this afternoon, just on my own, I watched a documentary called Tough Guy, which it struck my interest growing up outside of Detroit, being a Detroit Red Wings fan. This documentary was about uh, the late Bob Probert, who was a famous um, Detroit Red Wings player who unfortunately got into, from a, even from his teens, a lot of trouble with alcohol and drugs and trouble with the law. And he died 10 years ago at age 45. So I, boy, I got to watch, I got to watch uh, something that's a little uh comedic chuckle fest next time. Yeah, you're gonna have to watch, you know, Caddyshack or The Hangover or something to 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 water that down a bit. Um uh, well, there, there's some foreshadowing when we talk about some foreshadowing. We, we get to whiskey talk. But uh how, how about you Jamie? How was your weekend? Yeah, it was it was pretty good. So uh this was our our uh annual wine party weekend. So this is our eleventh annual uh wine party. Um and this is a, a tradition that a, a friend of mine used to do in Michigan. Um, we loved their their party a whole lot. Then they moved, and we just we decided to pick up the tradition ourselves and, and carry it forward. So it's a it's a fun. You know, everybody brings a bottle. Uh, uh, we we bag we label them and bag them and give people scorecards, and they wander around the house sampling and scoring. And, you know, it's not a connoisseur's party. It's, it's, it's our friends. And mm-hmm. um, uh, we, the house was filled with people. And, and then we give out prizes for uh, the best white, the best red. And then we also give out a prize for the worst wine, um, <laughs> which usually is a gag gift, such as a, uh, this uh, last night was a bottle of moonshine. Um, so, uh it's it's a fun party, uh, lots of great food, good conversation, uh, 
great friends visiting that we don't always get to see. So, um, so yeah, we, we always look forward to this every, every single year. So, um, and as has become tradition, once we, once we give out the prizes, those that want to switch from wine drinking to whiskey, I, uh, I, I, I share, share with some of my bottles, uh, with our, with our guests. Yeah. Always yeah. a nice way to finish it off. Yeah, there are some of us who drink both. Uh, my wife and I both drink wine and had a glass of red wine with dinner earlier. And we we have a group of friends here in um, Texas who who get together and do a similar thing uh, fairly often, bringing bottles and opening and sharing. And uh, some of the guys in the group um, are also whiskey drinkers, and and some are not. So it's just interesting to see different tastes. You know, look, different people like different types of wine or not at all. And some people like different whiskeys or, or not at all. Yep. Yeah. And it, it's, what's always interesting is that the, the most expensive wine never wins. Um, <laughs> it's, it's always something a little more accessible and, and probably easy to drink, easier to, to digest and, and kind of comprehend what you're drinking. Um, so the stuff that gets too complex and, and, uh, really hits you is doesn't always do quite as well. Um, so really excellent versions of a bridal uh, don't do as well as blends, for example. Uh, so yep. it's always always interesting to see what wins and and uh, what the patterns are. Yeah. Well, I think you know with wines and whiskeys, there are you know what what some people would call crowd pleasers and you know different different tastes, different palates, different preferences. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think as we as we both feel, I think about whiskey is have it, have it the way you enjoy it. Um, and, uh, it's not a right way. It's not a right whiskey. Yeah. Um, so we have our, our favorites and that probably is a, a good, good way to actually start talking about how we, how we do drink our whiskey. Um, yeah. And, and so we, uh, this idea of trying whiskey in different ways and how different people, uh, drink it. Um, we, we thought we'd explore the topic of adding water to whiskey. Um, which is, uh, you know, for, for longstanding whiskey drinkers and particularly people in Scotland, this is considered, uh, mandatory. Um, you know, it's, it's very, uh, very traditional, very common. Um, I've, I've uh, received this wonderful gift of a glass, uh, glass dropper, which I I've used to start adding whiskey, uh, water, which I used to just used to just pour some in. Yeah. Um, so that, that's started to, uh, shape some of my whiskey drinking, uh, sometimes harder to do when you're, you're at a restaurant or, uh, things like that. But it, it's, it's something that from a lean standpoint, right. We always talk about trying to understand cause and effect. Mm -hmm. And so just because you're supposed to do it that way, uh, isn't always a great answer for, for a lean thinker. Um, so and, and we're going to, we're going to try it. You want to do your own experiments too. You want to do your own experiments. Exactly. So we're, we're going to do our own experiments, but also explore this. Uh, we'll have the same whiskey with and without water. Um, but you, you started digging into some of the articles um, about adding water. And so maybe you can summarize a little bit about uh, what, what the theory is behind it at least. Yeah. And, you know, it's something, like you said, I've, I've learned about this in, in Scotland and, and sometimes I'll do it on my own. Like, you know, at a restaurant, um, if you've got a straw with water, uh, a straw makes a, a fairly decent 
makeshift water dropper and, and, and what you've sent me and what you're using, I think we're going to talk about this in a couple of minutes is, um, I think a fancier version of that same effect um, yes. of, of adding a little water. But you know what, what, the one thing I've been told is that there, there is some science to it that um, if you look at the surface tension across the top of a pour of whiskey, that um, it, it prevents some of the aromas from fully breaking that barrier. And so that the idea of even adding one drop of water, it's not that you're diluting the whiskey per se, even though sometimes you might want to do that a little. Um, it's more about breaking that surface tension and supposedly releasing um, different aromas. So in the show notes, we'll, we'll link um, to a couple different articles and, and getting a little bit deeper into the science about uh, bringing certain molecules to the surface and no, but I thought, you know, in the one article it said here, again, like we were saying, whiskey preferences are personal. So when the question comes up of how much water should you add, some experts said, well, it's really hard to say in general. So there's the the classic answer of it depends. How much water should you add? The right amount, right? The right amount. The right amount. Yeah. And certainly, um, you know, I, I have, you know, listening to podcasts and other things, I've I've noticed that certainly some people do use it to dilute their whiskey just to slow themselves down a little bit and enjoy their favorite whiskey a little longer yeah. uh, rather than to guzzle it down. And, and so that's a pretty, uh, pretty valid reason. Um, but, but I think we've both uh, experienced it having an effect on the taste and we'll get into our selections here in a second, but, but I, I will say, you know, my, my belief or at least experience seems to be that, uh, the impact is greater, uh, and I, I, I haven't done this as a truly scientific experiment, but the impact is greater with older whiskeys. Mm. That, that a, a very young whiskey, it, it doesn't seem to change it quite as much as an older whiskey. And I'm just curious if you've had the same uh, experience or, or right. any correlation to any, anything in the whiskey. I, 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 I would want to go do my own experiment about that. <laughs> Um, the, the experiments I'm doing tonight, one is um, a five-year whiskey, and, and we will get into the, some of the detail here. It's a, it's a Texas bourbon. Then the second one is a, a scotch that's aged 11 years. But the, re the reason I, I chose them is that they're both um, relatively high proof. And then the second one that I'm going to try is uh, a very peaty scotch. And so the one article I was reading was saying that the, uh, the molecules associated with that peaty aroma are said to be released by adding water. But then the scientists say like, well, other flavors, vanilla or caramel or things that you might get in um, the bourbon that I'm drinking were probably released in a similar way, but they had studied just in particular, this one molecule associated with that peaty or smoky flavor. Right. Right. So they, you know, they have the empirical side and then the, that, that informs the theory, which they then expand and, and extend into other other areas. So, so yeah, we're both doing the same experiment tonight, uh, taking taking a whiskey with and without water um, to see how much it, it it differs. Now, the way I've done mine, so my my particular whiskey is a, a brand new bottle, something I haven't had before. So I, I'm not terribly influenced by what I'm expecting of it. Um, but I have a 21-year-old Glenn Farkless, which is 
a, a new one for me. Uh, I think I believe I've had the brand before, but probably yeah. uh, very unlikely I've had the 21 year old. And so I actually poured uh, some into two different glasses, identical glasses, put water in one, not in the other. Um, so, uh, you know, my, my first, how you added it. Yeah. So I, I used, uh, I used this water dropper that I, I have from angels share, uh, used distilled water, which I don't know if that really makes a difference, but we're on a well. And so we have some fairly hard water and I, I, I tend not to even want to mess up my, my good whiskey glasses with that. Yeah. Um, although eventually they do get washed. So, uh, so I, I, I add distilled water. I, I tend to add it um, in a pretty low proportion. Um, but I'm going to say uh, if, if it's a smaller pour, um, it, it's probably close to 20% of the glass is water. Hmm. Um, so it, it depends on what it is. Um, so I, I definitely add more than just a drop. Um, I, I add enough, maybe 20% is a little high, but it's enough that I can actually see it swirling and, yeah. and interacting and you can see it as it goes into the whiskey. And how, what, what's how the, interacts. what's the ABV on that Glen Farkas? That's a good question. It's right, yeah. right here. Uh, 43%. 43%. So yeah, and I, I've, I've had Glen Farkless, not the 21, but I think that's one I learned about in Scotland. You don't see that one here as often. It's not as Com- popular and not as easily available as Glen right. Livet, Glen Fittick, Glen Morangy, Glen whatever. Um, but yeah, 43% is, um, you know, I mean, like legally it's got to be at least 40%. Um, but, you know, I think a lot, I don't know if, you know, people um, listening realize, some, I'm, sure, I'm sure some do, that most whiskeys have been, they'll, they'll say proofed down or, you know, watered down. Um, to the percentage that that's listed on the bottle. So like what I'm drinking is um, I've mentioned Garrison brothers in other episodes. This is a release um, called their cowboy bourbon. So this is cask strength. And even as far as that goes, so this is like straight from the barrel. It has not been proofed down. And even at that, it is extremely high um, ABV um, 68.65%. Well. Wow. Um, so a lot of whiskeys would get proofed down to 50 or 46 or 43, or maybe even, um, to 40. And so this idea of adding water is often already happening at the distillery. And, and the one article that I read, and you know, we'll, we'll link to it, you know, is sort of saying that there, there may be a certain sweet spot where if the proof is too high, the alcohol may overwhelm certain flavors. So there's, there's another argument um, for adding water to it. But I'll tell you, I love this uh, Garrison Brothers Cowboy Bourbon. Um, I'm going to add some water to it because it, it doesn't taste like 68% might. Which means you have to be pretty careful with it. I do. I, I poured one ounce and I'm going to just put two dry, well, whoops, three. And Jamie's really underselling this glass stopper. We'll post a picture in the show notes. Like it, it's um, uh, a glass stopper where the top of it looks like a copper pot still. Yep. All made out of glass. So thank you for being here. Yes, sir. Nice end of year. Thanks for doing the podcast gift. So thanks for doing the podcast to you, Jamie. But yes, sir. I've added, added my water and. um, 
Yeah, and see, and this is one where I could probably get away with adding more than just a drop or two without losing flavor. I would imagine at that alcohol level, you, you probably could. But, you know, the other thing I'll do sometimes in a restaurant, and it depends on, on the whiskey or it depends on how warm it is outside, is just, you know, throw a single ice cube in there, a small ice cube, let it melt a little bit and cool the whiskey and water it down a little bit. Yep, I'll do that when I'm drinking whiskey as opposed to tasting whiskey. Um, I think when I'm tasting whiskey, uh, where I'm, I'm really trying to enjoy it and take my time with it, it's very, very unlikely I add any ice, but I will add water. And you know, with 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 mine, I'm I'm, you know, I'm sampling them side by side in two different glasses, um, and and I get two two specific places where I'm getting a difference. First is on the nose. Um, on the one without water, I'm getting kind of more of a banana like smell and I'm, I'm horrible at tasting notes. So it's, it's not really relevant what I'm smelling, but I get many more earth tones in the one that I've added the water to. Mm. And then the other place that I noticed the difference on the front of the, of the tongue, I don't notice much at all, but on the, the finish, I get a much longer and deeper finish with the one I've added water to. It, it definitely, you know, the one I, I can sip uh, without and it goes down nice and smooth and then it's gone. Uh, but with a glass I've added the water to it, it lingers, it has a, a longer finish, uh, again, more, a little more peat and earth tones are uh, coming out in, in that one. So, you know, I guess from an experimental standpoint, whether it's better or not, I'm not even sure I could say, but it's definitely different. It certainly has had an effect. Um, yeah, I didn't do that and didn't think to do that side by side uh, comparison. But I mean, I like this whiskey to begin with, and and it, it's it's got a very long, intense finish. So this is this is a whiskey for taking an occasional sip and reading a few pages of a book and then going back for another small sip. But I, I will give a bit of a shout out um, you know, because this is a Texas straight bourbon whiskey um, for my friends at Garrison Brothers and. This release, this cowboy bourbon release, has been named uh, the small or the the micro whiskey of the year by the Jim Murray Whiskey Bible, which is uh, quite an honor um, and for them to get. And uh, in episode one, I drank their release called um, Garrison Brothers Ball Moray, which has more recently been named that small micro producer of the year uh, by Jim Murray. So um, I, I don't think it's just overt Texas pride. It's uh, it's good whiskey. <laughs> yeah, no question. And you've shared that with me as well. So um, I, I do think what's interesting is you talked about the science behind this is that it's, it, it's really about the oily aspects of the, the whiskey that it's interacting with. And, you know, one of the ways you really can tell about the oily nature of your whiskey is, you know, what's called the legs, which is as you swirl it around in your glass, can you see these streaks going down the glass and that's, that's really the oil kind of holding together the, the, the surface tension. Yeah. Um, and so you, you might surmise that the, the better the legs on a whiskey, the more of an impact the water could have. Um, yeah. I, I, I think you, you need to probably try a lot to uh, really test that theory out. But if, if the science is correct, I think there's some, some yeah. merit in the correlation. Yeah. And so maybe this is part of a, a transition to 
our next topic and our in the news segment, but you mentioned um, science and we're, we're going to be talking, um, somebody emailed me a question or sent an article um, about the supply chain impact or the lean or the business impact from uh, the new coronavirus, AKA COVID-19. Um, but there, there was something circulating around this week. I don't know if you saw this, Jamie, of like, you know, you can't find hand sanitizer anywhere in the stores. And the article said you can make your own hand sanitizer by combining aloe vera gel and vodka. And then very quickly, uh, another Texas company I'm giving a plug to, I guess Tito's Vodka, put out press release saying, do not do this because 40%, most vodkas are bottled at 40% ABV. That is not high enough alcohol content to serve as a disinfectant. The CDC says it's got to be at least 60%, which my Garrison Brothers qualifies. And unless it's the zombie apocalypse, I'm not using this for um, hand sanitizing purposes. No, no, that's that's some very expensive hand sanitizer. So, um, too. We should mention that we're not going to get it all into the uh, the science of the of the virus or the health side of it. We're not we don't work for the CDC or the WHO, and and we're not here to either spread apocalyptic news or assure everyone. We're really here to talk about the impact on on business and in particular supply chains, um, as it has been very real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, why don't why don't you start with the, uh, you know, kind of the question that you got because I think it frames uh, why we're even talking about this or what what it, how it got our attention. Yeah. So you know, the question was asking, you know, basically just to comment on an article. It was actually um, it was a story from a show on public radio that I really like called Marketplace. Do you ever listen to Marketplace when you're in the you drive a lot, Jamie? Uh, sometimes, yeah. So I certainly they, listen they, to it. They do a good podcast version of the show. It's like a thirty-minute um, business show that's on usually NPR stations. But you know, the uh, the headline from either the print story or the version you listen to says, "Quote: Just in time, unquote, manufacturing model challenged by COVID nineteen." And the article says, just to read a little bit of it, uh, at issue here is a global manufacturing model that focuses on low costs and lean inventory at every step in the chain. A model where all of the parts arrive at the plant just in time. The just in time model comes from Toyota. And so I think, you know, part of the reality out there is that, you know, when this hit China, um, it has affected many, many factories over there where they've been shut down because of um, health concerns and, and not having people congregate. And so that's um, affecting many global uh, supply chains for um, things, including surgical masks and, and, and medications. But, you know, the thing that I sort of, you know, cringe at right away is the idea that um, globalization or offshoring or moving production to China, when that may be very far away from the customer, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call that a lean model and I, I wouldn't call it a just-in-time model because I, you know, I think just-in-time more often than not requires um, being close to your customer and, and proximity. You look at Toyota plants and they have uh, they built a plant in San Antonio and they said, well, you know, we don't have a lot of suppliers nearby, so they built a huge supplier park that's attached and connected to the building. And so, it, it to me, it's it's a head scratcher to associate sourcing manufacturing to China 
with lean in just in time. I, 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 that connection doesn't make sense to me. Well, and I think that that actually speaks to a, a broader issue, which I don't want to spend too much time on before we get back to supply chain. And it it is people trying to attribute everything Toyota might do as equal to a lean model or in general, just applying specific solutions to Toyota as opposed to understanding what's underneath it, the thinking, et cetera. And so there is a risk, a fundamental risk in just sort of copying the answers and and not understanding the why behind it. And we certainly see with these solutions just in time and other factors that there, there is a tendency to to not really think through the, the why behind the, the design. Yeah. But I think you're, you're, you're dead on right is that while low inventory certainly can correlate to lean companies and put Toyota aside for the moment, um, you know, just in time doesn't really imply a, a globally spread out supply chain. Um, yeah. as, as if you did copy Toyota, uh, that's less likely that you would have uh, a lot of supply coming from one plant in in Wuhan, for example. Yeah, and you know, if you look at what Toyota has done over the last twenty years, is there's been this broader trend of companies sourcing, sending manufacturing to China. Toyota has not done that, right? So, I mean, I think we could point to this being risks of a just-in-time model or a Toyota slash lean model if, for example, Toyota had been shutting down plants around the world and relocating all production to China or relocating, demanding that they source all their parts from China and then try to do assembly in the U.S. and other countries. Toyota hasn't done that. So again, I think kind of the premise of the Marketplace article um, shows sort of an unfortunate misunderstanding of, um, you know, why, why bring um, just in time or Toyota into it. But, you know, I think, Jamie, you, you, you raised an interesting question of, you know, of, of inventory. And maybe let me ask you the more general question of, you know, how much can you really try to buffer against disruptions in your supply chain, even within what's intended to be a lean or just in time model with nearby suppliers? Yeah, I, th- I think that's, uh, I think that's a key question here, because it's really about how much risk how much disruption you can absorb. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the idea that the only reason we're having, you know, working on low inventories is that, uh, is that just in time or lean has forced us to do so is, is kind of crazy, I think. Um, I can't think of a, a single CFO uh, that would uh, not have their, their uh, hand on the tiller of, of inventory volumes. It, it adds to risk in a lot of different ways especially where obsolescence or uh, seasonal differences can, can really cause some, some problems and then you end up sitting in inventory. So, so, you know, lowering inventory frees cash and cash is fundamentally core to what drives value in a business uh, or how, how you drive value in a business. And so I think the idea that the only reason that we're, we're trying to reduce inventories is because of just in time is, is, is kind of ridiculous. Um, and, and you can only reduce your inventory, uh, you know, forget, forget COVID-19 for a moment, but you can only reduce it to the amount that the variation in your process can handle. And, and if and you're shipping from a supply chain, yeah, right, exactly. And so if you're shipping from a factory in China 
in in uh, container ships to a port and and then to onto another factory, you're you're going to end up with a lot of inventory anyway. There's that's not stripped clean. Right. There's a lot of variation in that, and therefore there's there's quite a bit of inventory covering that particular aspect of a of a supply chain, no matter who you are, lean or not. Yeah, there's that in transit inventory. And man, my gosh, even going back 20 years ago, I worked at um, Dell Computer in Austin. And Dell would often be described as a quote unquote lean company, which, you know, from roots in the audio industry, I never really liked that label being applied to Dell. And people would say, um, well, Dell only has a couple hours worth of inventory. I'm like, okay, well, that was literally technically and legally true. But they had um, supplier shared warehouses a couple of minutes down the road that would have two weeks of inventory or more, which is still you know a low amount of inventory. But you know there's a difference if a part was coming from a relatively local supplier, and at that point there were some, like the the the, the metal and the mechanical parts of the outer PC case came from a local company. But hard drives and and, and, and electronics coming from halfway around the world required um, inventory to be buffered somewhere. Even though Dell was, was doing build to order uh, very well and, and, and customizing and shipping um, based on customer pull, the entire supply chain wasn't pull. The entire supply chain wasn't just in time because of the distances and the variation involved. Yeah, and I, I think that's, you know, when you have conversations about this, you really need to uh, distinguish uh, how we look at supply chain inventory versus how we look at financial inventory. Right? So lots of companies, I, in fact, I just saw on CNBC this week, company talking about their inventory and, and all they had really changed is change when they pay for it from their suppliers. Right. And that, that, that was great for them, right? They reduced their financial risk. Um, they reduced their, uh, their, 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 they improved their cash position, but their supply chain inventory didn't really change. And, and so if, if you're talking about things like uh, the risk of running your supply chain, uh, stripping it out, uh, running it dry, that has nothing to do with your financial model. That's all about your actual supply chain model. And there's a there's a fundamental difference between the between the two. Well, and and like you said, I mean, companies even without being inspired by Lean or, or Toyota um, have often slashed inventory, sometimes to their own detriment, um, where you have suboptimization that comes from slashing inventory. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, having too much inventory uh, is is a drain on cash flow but not having enough inventory to the point where it happen, hampers production and customer delivery, that can have a different cash flow um, dynamic. So, like, so we've got to find, at least what I was always taught is that you've got to find that balance of like, what's the right balance for today's system? And then you can try to do things to improve the system that would then allow you to have lower inventory, which is to me a different thought process and like, oh, let's just slash inventory and the rest will sort itself out. Yeah, and I, I think I think in the end, when you look at inventory in your supply chain and and problems like COVID nineteen, no one could have carried enough inventory to cover up yeah. such a significant disruption. Right, if a factory shuts down for a month or two, or runs at half volume for a couple of months, 
you're, you're not going to carry that much inventory to cover all of that. Uh, it's very unlikely that you can, can really absorb that in a, in a, on an ongoing basis. And so I think, I think there's, there's still an important question that's worthy of asking. It's not just saying that, that everything's fine. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, and, and I actually, so I got a, an email over the weekend from, from NACD, which is the National Association of Corporate Directors, and uh, uh, really asking what's your, it's kind of a board guide for uh, COVID-19. Right? What, what should the board be paying attention to around this? Because clearly it's going to have an impact. And, and the very first question, they, they broke it down and we'll, we'll link to it as well in the show notes. But the very first question is, do we have sufficient visibility into our extended global supply chain to understand where our business is vulnerable to disruption? And then what alternative sourcing strategies are we considering? Right? So I, I think that's a nice starting point. It has nothing to do with just inventory. It has to do with architecture and it has to do with response to disruption, right? Not, not avoiding disruption just, but also response to disruption once it does occur. Now, I mean, and let's pretend for a minute COVID-19 was not even an issue. I mean, they, these are questions businesses should have been asking or probably have been asking for a long time. If you look at um, disruptions of supply chains caused by, um, you know, the earthquake and the tsunami in 20, that was what, 2012? Yeah, I think yep. that was 2012. Sounds right. Um, Toyota famously in 1997, there was a fire um, at one of their suppliers. Um, you know, there, there are also, you know, you can have um, a huge inventory full of where, uh, warehouse full of inventory that get hit, that gets hit by an earthquake just the way the factory might be. Um, so, you know, to, to your point, I mean, to think we'll just buffer our way out of these different risks, um, probably, probably not the most realistic strategy. You can only do so to, to a certain extent, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it leads to a question around dealing with risk where there, there's certainly the, uh, uh, the knowns, which are, you know, sort of knowable risks to your, to your supply chain or your business in general. And then can you manage that risk in a, in a, in a, ma- in a foreseeable way, right? So, so a nuclear power plant knows that, you know, while very unlikely, it's not about how unlikely it is. It's about, they know that a nuclear meltdown or, or a nuclear disaster of some kind is a risk. So they have a plan for that. And then there's the unknown risks, which really isn't about identifying the risks. I think, I, I'm not sure I would give a lot of credit to a company that said, oh, we saw COVID-19 coming mm, um, right. and we prepared for it. Uh, I, I, think, I think they'd still sound a little goofy if they actually said they had predicted this. But how good is the company at responding and managing those risks when they occur? And I think as you talk, whether it's the boardroom or the management team or the site team, as you talk about risks, I think it's, 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 it is about risk identification and mitigation, but it's also about how quickly can you manage yourself? How, rea- how uh, responsive are you? How agile are you right. to organize your resources and respond? With, a, with an effective plan. Yeah, so you know, I went back and, and kind of jogged my memory a bit on that 1997 Toyota supplier fire in, in Japan. 
um, I, I sin, if I'm saying the name, I hope I'm saying that correctly. And, you know, I think part of the story there, well, so the one story I read said, um, I'm just quoting from it. Well, observers initially predicted that Toyota would have to halt production for weeks. The incident ultimately set Toyota's production back only five days. Because what happened here is, you know, I think, you know, Toyota's good relationships with their suppliers, kind of that collaborative um, nature to managing their suppliers. Um, other companies pulled together and started making those parts to help uh, reduce that disruption. Now, it was probably in their interest because if Toyota was unable to uh, assemble cars for weeks, then that would have hurt their own sales. So I'm not saying you know, that these other suppliers were doing it out of the kindness of, of their heart, but I think it goes sure. to show when you have a mutually beneficial collaborative relationship, to your point, part of that agility was those other suppliers stepping up and saying, okay, hey, we'll, we'll help you recover. Yeah, and I, I think I actually have a, a, a blog post uh, in the, somewhere in my queue uh, that isn't, I don't think, yet yet released called The Speed of Collaboration. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that's a big aspect of, of Lean in those cases is that when, when something changes, uh, something happens, whatever that might be, how quickly you can marshal resources, align on a common outcome, vision, desire, target state, whatever you want to call it, and then execute, execute, execute to over to, to get that into place, I think is, is one of those hallmarks of a lean company. And that's a great example of, it wasn't about avoiding the fire, right? All sorts of things can happen. Um, it, it was really about what they did once it happened. Yeah. And they got all of those, right? They got alignment, uh, they got focus, they got execution, they understood their process well enough that they could they could get up to speed and they spent very little time worrying about, you know, finger pointing or anything like that. And I think, I think that says a lot in both, you know, I'll say smaller cases like that or, or global cases like we have going on now. Yeah. And, and one other thing that comes to mind, I mean, we talk about the reaction to the supply chain disruptions that happen for different reasons. Um, some companies might say, well, we need to get better at reacting. And some companies might look at reducing risk and preventing the problem to begin with. So, you know, there was one article I was looking at this, on, on this topic recently. I was just quoting from it again. It says, purchasing managers are intensely measured on how low their costs are. So that doesn't leave a lot of room to spend extra money because there might be some contingency in which everything falls apart. And so to me, that seems like, this screams systemic problem where if the senior management and, and leaders are creating a system that, that basically asks people to suboptimize their own part of the company, uh, that, that certainly seems like a recipe for disaster. So how can we be proactive and, and look at things that are maybe predictable dynamics if, if we're putting such pressure on people, which, which puts them in a position to say, well, I've got... The, I can get the cheapest piece price by single sourcing to that factory in China. You can't blame that purchasing manager or that, you know, whoever's making that supply chain uh, person that there, there's, there's a systematic um, issue that you'd think senior management and boards should be looking at more proactively. Right. 
Yeah, and I, I think that goes back to the point around managing the known risks, mm. right? And then, you know, understanding how do you build them into your system of work, right? So, so again, I, I don't really give a company a lot of credit if they said they predicted COVID-19, but if, if they quality problems is worthwhile predicting, right? They're going to happen. And so do you incorporate what happens when there's a quality problem into your purchasing manager model? So, so we've had some, some very small companies that, that end up with very sophisticated uh, supply chain models. And the reason is because they, they look at, hey, if we hear about a quality problem here today, by the time we you know, actually get to talk to our supplier in China, it's 24 hours. If we, if we have to go there, it's three days, right? And so what is the impact of that? And is it worth the extra reduction of the piece cost uh, to incorporate that risk, right? And so they start to look at uh, the time value of money and, you know, is it parts on, on you know, COD or is it, you know, terms for a different company? Um, how much collaboration is needed in design and, and day-to-day management? I, I think you have to look at what you're, your known risks are and put some value on them. And if you don't, you, you can't blame a purchasing manager for looking at the lowest cost because you haven't systematized them dealing with risk. You've just moved the risk to someone else has to cover it up once the risks become real. Yeah. So one other question, I'm, I'm curious if, if this is something you've looked at, Jamie, and, and you're involved with boards and this world. Um, you know, 20 plus years ago when we were at MIT, you know, in, in the system dynamics field, the work of Peter Senge and people like that were talking about companies like Royal Dutch Shell that were doing all of this scenario planning. And that was really trendy, right? I don't know. Is that still something that companies do, kind of this rigorous scenario planning approach? I don't, I don't see a whole lot of that. I do see... Um, at least looking at, again, what are the known risks versus the unknown risks? I, I do see a, a lot of companies looking at uh, looking at the known risks and, and not trying to work out um, all of what they might do if, if that risk becomes real, but sort of use it as, uh, I'll say, some robustness testing of their strategy or approach. Yeah. So I think you approach risk in those types of ways in two ways. One, more market-driven, more company strategy-driven and kind of working its way back in. What do you think might happen in the market? The other is more inside-out. What's going to happen inside the company that's a risk? And then what are we doing operationally to, to deal with that? Um, so so I, I think it starts to inform your strategy, but but you don't build a plan for every scenario because you could spend all of your time doing that. Yeah. Um, fundamentally, and but you at least you've at least looked at it and used it in a sense to do some robustness testing against your plans. Yeah, and I, and I guess in an increasingly globalized world, there's all sorts of risk, um, geopolitical risk, um, conflict or war or disease or natural disasters. That that's just part of the the reality that the business world has been facing the last couple of decades, right? Well, fundamentally, and I and I think they've always faced them, right? I mean, the, the buggy, buggy whip manufacturers, right? They 
they dealt with risk. I think it's just the speed at which it can happen mm-hmm. is far greater between air travel and internet and other factors. Just some of these risks become real faster than they, they did in the past. Um, and so that means your need to be responsive and, and to, to know how to manage your way through those is more important because it's, it, what it was, you know, they were never able to predict them all. It's a matter of how, how quickly you respond. So I, I do think that, you know, you start to look at the risks that you might face and some of them that are again in the unknown category. I go back to, uh, uh, the, some of the diet fads that came out, right? When Atkins and, and other South Beach diets came out, nobody ate potato chips anymore. Well, what do the potato chip companies do? Well, they come up with baked potato chips instead of fried potato chips. And it was, it was better. It was a, a step in a direction to respond. And it was, again, nothing that they had sitting on the shelf just waiting for the diet fad to happen. It was how quickly they could recognize the gap, the risk, the failure mode, and then how quickly they could act on that in, in a different way. And I, I think, again, when it comes to inventory and supply chain and, and these things, it's still, you, you, manage, you manage the known risks and use it to inform the robustness of your plan. And then you focus on your ability to organize yourselves and react in a deliberate, focused way when risks become real. So um, it ended up being a really kind of meaty, meaty topic. And there's a, we're curious what, what listeners think. And um, we'll ask you, you can comment on the blog posts that uh, Jamie and I both put up about this episode, if, if you've got things to share. But um, I was going to suggest, do you want to move on to the listener question? And I'm going to talk briefly. I've got a second whiskey here. Yeah, go ahead and... Uh... Go ahead and fire away with your second whiskey. What right. are you What are you experiencing with that one? Poured about an ounce here. So my second experiment, totally different kind of whiskey. So we're going from Texas bourbon um, to Scotch, a, a single malt from the Campbelltown region um, of Scotland. This is from Longrow. It's uh, the the parent company is Springbank. Um, I believe if um, if you're yeah, it says right here on the bottle. I, if, in, in the glass um, down on the label, it's kind of hidden. Springbank Distillery. But this is um, aged 11 years, and it's got some secondary aging in uh, Cabernet Sauvignon casks. So there's there's a real sweet, it's funny, there's the, the peatiness, and then there's a little bit of a, a sweetness as you get with a wine barrel finish. So I'm curious now, my experiment for the last um, 15 minutes or so that we're talking is to be adding some water to this one. Excellent. I'm still working through my, I finished my, uh, my, my non-watered glass of Glen Farkless. So now I'm finishing my, my glass with a little water in it. Um, and it, it continues to have that long finish that, that uh, it started with, which is nice. So our, our listener question is, is we get this in, in a lot of different forms. Um, and, but it really is about, you know, sort of the bottoms up, top down. So the question is, we've led a grassroots lean initiative at my company for the past couple of years. It has been successful, but we are struggling to take it to the next level and get buy-in from upper management. Upper management is slow to change and set in their ways. 
because um, none of us are, of course, right? Mm. Um, any advice on how to sell this internally? Um, so I, I assume, you know, I get this question quite quite often. Um, I assume you hear that some version of this question all yeah. the time as well. Yeah. So and there's no easy answer to this. So I got <laughs> you can try there, first. Yeah, there really there really isn't, but. My first, you know, my first response usually is that what do you, uh, and I think every situation is different for starters, but I, my first question back to them is always, well, what are you missing that you need? Right? Uh, mm-hmm. People want upper management to be involved. Um, they want them to be engaged. And I do believe it's vitally important at some point in the journey to get it. But what are you missing? Why is it? Why do you think it's so so important to get upper management buy-in? And, and the reason that's important is first, people can use it as a bit of a red herring on uh, their struggles in their own grassroots effort. It's like, hey, I you know I can't make more progress because of them. When when right now the way you're trying to make progress has nothing to do with upper management. And so that's one reason that question is important. The second reason it's important is if you're going to ask for upper management to support you, then you better know what good looks like. <laughs> Otherwise, you don't know what you're asking for. Um, and, and by the way, what you get might be counterproductive if you, if you aren't framing it properly because you don't really know what you want. Um, and so you know, usually when I ask that question back, uh, it's, it's met with some version of silence because Mm. Uh, people haven't really thought through, well, what, what are they really looking for from upper management? Well, it's tempting any time for, uh, you know, to, for, for, for people to point fingers instead of um, looking in the mirror, pointing up, pointing down, pointing to some other department, pointing at the customers, pointing at suppliers. Um, I mean, it's a question that could apply in manufacturing or healthcare or different settings. Um, I think your question is a good one, Jamie. I mean, I think the question I would ask is, is lean a solution to a problem that executives see? And is it a solution to a problem that executives will admit to? You know, I think there's, you know, there's a couple different criteria there. So um, I think a lot of times, and, and I've been guilty of this in the past, and I'm trying to learn from it, you know, pushing solutions tends to create pushback instead of understanding the needs of who we're working with and trying to frame um, lean as a solution to something that executives care about. That's, I think, one, one thing that's worth looking into. Why, why, why bother selling something if um, the customer isn't, not only not looking for something, if, you know, if the customer is not dissatisfied, this is marketing 101, right? You can have, um, you, you mentioned buggy whips earlier. Um, you know, kind of, you know, cars versus a horseless carriage or a robotic horse. I mean, that, that's something where people clearly said, okay, yeah, they, they might not have asked for that. But once automakers existed, people said, yeah, I want that. Maybe the same is happening now with electric vehicles. And we give Elon Musk credit for that, where people might not have demanded electric vehicles in large numbers, but Elon Musk, they made them appealing and interesting, if not sexy. Um, so do we have to do the same thing with lean? Yeah, and I, I think so, right, is is that, you know, if you want to get somebody's attention, you know, help them solve a problem that they, they, that they have, that they care about. Um, 
Now, now maybe that the problem that you're trying to solve is a problem they don't care about. And what you do need to do is solve them on the problem. But that's still, even if they're, they're not there yet, it's still a different approach than selling them on the solution. Right. And, and um, I'll, I'll go back to a, a story from long ago, doing a deep dive study, uh, surveying, you know, with interviews and surveys, uh, hundreds of employees at this one company. And the conclusion was that the senior management had a list of what they thought the top 10 problems were in the company but that the employees didn't get it. And the employees had a list of what they thought was the top 10 companies or problems in the company, but the executives didn't get it. And the problem was that it was the same list, mm. right? They, it was, they all saw the same problems. It was the same list of problems, but they weren't connecting. They weren't connected to each other in a way that they understood how they, how they saw it, how they interpreted it, whether it was a language barrier, an engagement barrier, whatever. But, but fundamentally, whether you have to sell them on the problem first uh, and then connect them to the solution or not, you do need to be aligned on what the problems are, what yeah. gaps you're trying to solve. And, uh, and if, you can't, if you can't get around that, it's really hard to, to get people to agree to a solution. Yeah. And you know, I can imagine somebody you know, at that grassroots level or somebody who's been brought in from another company might believe very strongly, for example, you know, leadership needs to stop blaming individuals for systemic problems. Senior leaders, that, you know, they, they, they might not view that as a problem. They might not be aware of it, or even if confronted about things, they might just say, well, that's our culture here, or you don't understand, or I'm being a decisive leader by firing the person who was responsible for that. Um, things like that are really, really difficult to try to work through. Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, getting to more uh, systematic uh, and symptomatic aspects of, of your organization, your culture, et cetera, becomes important. Because if you can show that employees are less, less engaged, less willing to take risks, less willing to speak up because of that, now that, that starts to feel like a problem we can get our arms around. Yeah. Maybe we don't care about the blame, but we care about how much energy they put into their job. And, and maybe they still don't, but, but fundamentally, you do have to get to what the impact is um, and not just talk about it in, in, in theory. And I, I think this is also on the, on the flip side of what we're looking for from executives, where we also focus too much on the theoretical side. I've seen, I've met with many lean teams over the years that are complaining about their executives. And when you really challenge them and say, what do you, what do you want? What are you looking for from them that you're not getting? Well, be specific, right? Be, be specific, but what they're looking for, you know, well, do you, do you want them to delegate problem solving? Well, yeah, well, they, they, they're doing that. Do you want them to uh, uh, help frame problems for you? Well, they're doing that. Um, are they, you know, asking good questions? Well, they're doing that. Um, what they what they really want is they want to acknowledge that those are all lean things, or they want them to use specific words. And, and so, the things that we're sometimes asking for from our executives are too often the superficial things, and when the substance might actually already be there in certain cases, maybe not to a perfect degree, but enough of a degree that we can build on it. 
But if we only care about them sort of acknowledging the, the leanness and using the words, then we, we sometimes miss the substance in the whole, whole equation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Um, and again, you know, I guess we're you know, curious what the listeners think about the listener question. You can go and comment on um, the blog post about the episodes. And if you've got other questions that you want us to address in the future, um, you can either email me, mark at markraven.com or jamie at, at, at jamie at jflinch.com or quite frankly, you know, catch us in an airport or at a visit or at a speech or, or whatever. But we, you know, we, we'll, we'll use the inspiration from anywhere for our discussions as yeah. we, we often tend to do. Yeah. And I, um, I, I still sometimes email, try emailing Jamie at his old email address. He shortened it and, and the website to at jflinch.com. You, you, I feel pressure now to change mine to be marketmgrab.com. Yeah, well, you know, your your name was uh, a little more conducive than mine. Mine's uh, uh, there's there's a reason that that uh, when you used to have to fill out your name on forms, that I would sometimes run out of space. So, um, you know, there's there's a, a pretty valid reason for needing to shorten it. Very few people can pronounce it <laughs> once they read it, and a whole lot fewer people seem to be able to spell it. So. Well, okay. And mgrab.com is not available anyway. So, well, there you go. You can stick with what you have. Never mind. So, Graven is the uh, six letter last name that is so easily misspelled and mispronounced. Go that it is. I, I notice most often mispronounced by, you know, by, uh, you know, Siri or, or Google. Um, <laughs> they, they never seem to get your pronunciation right. It's all from Mark Graben. That's exactly what, what it comes back as. So. All right. So closing, closing question. Um, first off for you, Jamie, we, you know, we both spent a lot of time giving talks and presentations in different ways. And I've seen you present, um, but you, you've got a certain preference for how you design presentations. Yeah. So, so, um, and I've, you know, fortunately, I think, because it's, to me, it's not about style, but substance, but have actually become known for doing most of my speeches without slides. And, um, and so what I usually use is, uh, is Microsoft OneNote and I use a tablet, I use a, a pen, digital pen. And I, uh, just like I would with a whiteboard in a smaller audience, I write things out as I go. And sure, my penmanship isn't quite as good um, as, as you could put it on PowerPoint. Um, and, and so the, the graphics aren't, aren't always pretty. Um, but, but I found, uh, besides the, just the comments I get about it is that I'm actually building the slides essentially live. It's, it's sort of a participation sport at that point. Mm -hmm. and, and so, uh, people kind of waiting to see what, what I write up on the, on the, on the board. And, and so that I think can increase engagement. Um, it also, uh, fundamentally, you have to be super prepared. So I just had this conversation this week with someone who was really wants to try this and they had an opportunity, but they, they weren't feeling quite as prepared. And so they went ahead and used their slides. Uh, you really have to prepare because you have zero crutches. It's just you and, a, and an audience and a, and a, white, a digital whiteboard. And so it, it kind of forces me to really know my stuff, know what I'm talking about, be able to, to, to shift based on audience response and, and maybe answers and things like that. Um, 
And, and so I've, I've focused much more on my substance rather than my style, even though I, I then get comments about the style uh, as a result of that. Well, that, that style probably gives you a lot of flexibility. You're not it it does, yeah, it absolutely does. And, 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 and generally that, you know, if you're not careful, it can be a, a huge disaster to have too much flexibility, right? You go off on a tangent, you, you run out of time. So you, again, you have to be prepared and know how to manage your, yourself yeah. through the process. But yeah, you can go off on a, on a tangent that's audience driven. Um, and, and, you know, I never have to speed through five slides to try to catch up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I, cause I just, well, I'm going to skip over a couple of things I thought I was going to say. Um, but nobody will really notice because I wasn't skipping yeah. through some slides. So it, it does allow some, some flexibility, but actually to get that flexibility, you actually have to even do even more planning to, to be prepared. Uh, for, do, do, do you, do you work from notes? You have written notes as part of that planning? I, I do. I do work from notes and that's, that's part of my planning. So I, I work from notes. I'll, depending on the audience, I might even pick some of the stories I might tell because I do love to, to tell stories as I go. Um, sometimes as I start to tell a story, my, my brain is triggered and I'm inspired by another story or a point I want to make. And that's some of the flexibility you speak about. But I, yeah, I do work from notes. They're usually pretty, um, fairly skimpy, but I go through them enough times that I, I, I really know in my head exactly what I want to do and accomplish. So I have very clear goals, uh, very clear key points, uh, key ideas or stories that I want to get across. And then that gives me, um, uh, gives me the structure I need to, to get through it in a, in a deliberate way. Yeah. And, um, they, you, you avoid the trap of um, if you're going to speak at an event and they want your slide six weeks in advance. Well, yeah, I've, and I've had to I've, I've had to sign a bunch of contracts that say that. And I've had to tell them before I sign it that I'm going to violate one of the terms of their contract because they're not getting any slides. Um, and, and that's, you know, some people want the slides. But uh, honestly, the people that really want the slides uh, would rather look at the slides afterwards than pay attention during. So I don't, I don't mind that we're not serving those folks quite as well as the ones that are that are in the room and engaged. And I'm okay with that. Um, and and I, you know, I'm not sure I've stretched the upper limits of this. I think the longest I've I've run anything without slides was actually two days, mm. a two day workshop without any slides. Yeah. Um, but again, you've got to be got to be pretty, pretty prepared mm -hmm. to do that. Um, and, and again, if people want to have a takeaway, nothing like taking their own notes to do that. Uh, yeah. It might be easier for them. I've certainly uh, created handouts often where I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have had handouts that accompany what I'm, I'm saying in a, you know, in actually a more usable format than what the slides they would normally get would be in, yeah. but it would, it, cause it would be maybe written out in prose or something. <laughs> Um, to describe some of the key concepts. So depending on the, the topic, there will be some handouts. Yeah. Um, and and uh, again, the idea is hopefully that's more valuable than a bullet, you know, the fifth bullet point on a slide that I can't remember the, the real meaning behind because it was shortened down to a yeah. bullet. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just having a quick memory of uh, the late, great Stephen Covey. This was maybe 10 years ago. I saw him give a fireside chat type talk at a Shingo conference. 
And he would talk. He had somebody in the back of the room running his PowerPoint. And he would be talking and he would be looking for something to illustrate a point. And he would say to his assistant in the back, he would say something like, bring up slide 37 or bring up the triangle slide. Or And the guy would boop, boop, boop. And he would very elegantly, but the slide would appear. <laughs> and um, he, you know, that happened a lot over the course of 60 or 90 minutes. And I went back um, afterwards on the back table and talked to that assistant. And so I was just curious about the process and the setup. He had a huge laminated sheet that was almost like you see what an NFL coach would hold with yep. their plays, but much bigger. And I asked him and he said, well, sometimes Professor Covey will ask for slide 37 and sometimes he'll ask for the slide with the triangle or whatever it was. And so he had this big list. It was all cross-referenced so that he could very quickly pull up the, uh, the slide that uh, Dr. Covey was looking for. I've never seen anybody do that since. I don't know if I'll ever see that again, but. No, but that it, it goes to the point of preparation, right? Knowing, knowing your content, right? He could refer to specific slides. He knew his content. He was prepared. And, um, and so that, that worked for him. Yeah. Um, now, you, you do a whole lot more public speaking than I do. Um, you know, multiple books and, and, and tours related to the books and workshops that go along with them. So you've, you certainly have done a lot more of that than I have. So, so what, what works for you? Well, so it's funny. Yeah, I've seen you present. You've seen me present. I really do try, um, you know, I've, I've gotten good coaching over the years. I really do try to minimize the number of words on, uh, on slides um, using, uh, you know, pictures or illustrations and like, you know, having the slides complement what I'm saying as opposed to being a substitute for what I'm saying. So if I have slides with words, it tends to be a quote that I very want to specifically give credit to somebody for, um, you know, I think, you know, uh, less is more. And, and, and I think, you know, to your point, it comes down to preparation. Like last week I gave a 20 minute talk and doing a 20 minute talk required so much more preparation and practice than a 60 minute talk because oh, in a absolutely. 60 minute talk, you've got so much wiggle room. Right. In, in terms of adjusting. And so like it, it, if I've done a 15 minute talk or a 20 minute talk, it's always, it's so much more work. And, and so last uh, Wednesday I was up on stage and they had a countdown clock and um, I, I nailed it almost to the second. Now I'm looking at that clock and I'm using that to help pace myself. And I think I ran over like six or seven seconds which I, I will call that success. I'll call that a success as well. Um, uh, but, but that, I mean, that, that goes to the same point of not using slides as a crutch, right? You, mm -hmm. you know, you're not uh, relying on the slides because you know what you want to say and you have an image that supports what you're saying. You're not saying what the slides tell you to say. And, yeah. and fundamentally, it, who is the master of the speech? Is it the person giving the speech or is it the materials that they have in their, in their hands yeah. or on their computer? And, and it should be the, the content provider. It should be the, the person, the person speaking should be the master of that, of that event. Yeah. And when the slides become the master of the event, that's when you get into problems. Yeah. 
And I, 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 we're not doing lean pet peeves today, but speakers running long is a huge pet peeve. Um, it's probably worse than a pet peeve. But um, the, the reason I felt so indulgent going six or seven seconds over is that um, like there was part of a session where I knew I was cutting slightly into like a 40 minute panel discussion where, you know, again, like, again, I think six or seven seconds, fine. But um, boy, you know, cutting into another speaker's time is, uh, I think that that's, that's a pretty big sin to avoid. Yeah. And I, you know, I'll, I'll often be giving a speech where it might be a little looser and uh, I'll ask people, you know, what time, how much, how many minutes do they need to close out the session? Right. And what time do you want me to get off stage? And I'll say, well, yeah, it's okay. Whatever. If you want to go long, which is an answer I can't stand because I don't, I don't want an unlimited answer. I want, I want to know when you want me off stage and I'll yeah. manage to that. Well, um, and, 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 and I want to add like, um, I was part of that panel. So I, I think later I yielded, I made sure I wasn't talking so much and <laughs> back those six or seven seconds. But um, part of the, uh, an argument for not using slides or having slides that are photos allows you to adjust as, as a speaker, sometimes you get put in an off, uh, awkward situation, awful, awkward, where you were invited to give a 45-minute talk, and you're the last speaker of the day, and they haven't managed time well, and now you've only got 20. Right. So you gotta, that, got to – there's nothing worse adjust. than somebody that have to say, well, i gotta, I got to jump through these slides, and, and that's just a bad experience for everybody. Yep. I'd rather take, take uh, three minutes at the beginning and cut the slides and – already know where I'm, where I'm going with it. Um, but yeah, those, those become problems and become distractions from the, from the content. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I was headed down the path that you, you've, you've ended with that you are on with more photos and less words. And I, I, I even measured my average words, but I, I felt like I was putting more effort into my slides than I was in my content, which is why I kind of shifted, shifted gears to, to, to focus on the content. But I, I also think there is a fundamental aspect of making it work for you as the speaker. Um, yeah. Don't try to copy someone's style. Uh, you know, make, make it work for you. Ultimately you have to deliver the content effectively. Yeah. And that's, that's the value that you're providing. And, and so, you know, PDCA until you find what works for you and, and uh, whether, you know, pe people think there's so many rules, like I shouldn't carry notes around or, you know, I've got to stand a certain way or button my coat or whatever it might be. And in the end, it is about the content and none of the rules apply unless they make you more effective. Yeah. And that's, that's ultimately what you, what you should use as your measure. That's what we're hoping for. Yeah. All right. So I think that that brings us to um, a close here on episode 14. Um, want to remind everybody that if you want to find other episodes, you can do so a couple different ways. You can go to leanwhiskey.com. You can spell whiskey K-E-Y or just uh, K-Y at the end. And uh, it'll forward to a page on my leanblog.org website, or you can go to Jamie's website at, at jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. So um, again, if you haven't already subscribed if this is your first episode, um, I encourage you, please do look for us on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, pretty much any place you might normally listen to podcasts. 
Yes, and please do rate, review, subscribe. Um, I, I do believe we've probably gotten more emails and you know, hallway comments uh, thanking us for the, the podcast and how much people seem to appreciate it than we, than we get people writing. But, but taking that extra moment to write helps other people find it. And uh, ultimately, the Lean community is about sharing ideas and building the community. So help your fellow Lean thinkers uh, with a, a rate, a review, and a subscribe. Yeah, and um, you know we we know um, you know we, we there may be a limited subset of people within the lean community who are interested in both lean and whiskey. Even though if you've gotten this far in the podcast, you know it was mostly about lean, a little indulgence about whiskey. But um, I think the people who are listening to this podcast, compared to others I've been involved in, um, feel much more strongly, and I get more feedback about this podcast than the others that I do. So I appreciate that. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, we uh, we do this because we enjoy it. Um, we hope you all get value out of it. Um, but but ultimately, this makes Mark and I better, as you know, we always get together, chat about lean stuff, try to make ourselves better, and uh, it it's always better with a little whiskey in our glass. So, it's sure. Hopefully, some of you got to sh- share along with us. Uh, if you're listening from home and not in your car, if you're listening in your car, then then it's lean water for you. Yeah. Lean coffee. Lean coffee works that, that, too. Fine. That, that was part of the inspiration. We don't really follow the lean coffee format, but that was part of the inspiration. For yes, lean we, 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 we actually, as much as we support the lean coffee format of, of structured discussions, uh, we, we did try to go the opposite end of the spectrum in a lot of ways, including you know less structure and, and uh, a more forgiving timeline, which was the whole point. And um So we we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, We wish you all the best and uh, cheers to you. Cheers. Here, I got two glasses, so I'll just... That was louder than I expected. (laughs) Louder means emptier.